All right, we've got breaking news, but the news that you thought. Um, anyways, it's been a crazy day, as everybody knows. Um, but we're going to do some quick introductions as we're in the green room. And in the green room, um, we're going to go reverse order um, in terms of like, uh, people that are going to be speaking at the event. So um, let's start with my co-host on Twitter, Vala Ashar. What's going on? Hi, everyone. Episode 208. Uh, looking forward to our discussion this afternoon. Thanks. Very cool. Our producer, L. She's hiding. <laughs> Steam for leader, sir. All right, cool. All right, let's go to Don. Yeah, Don Tampa. I'm executive chair of the Blockchain Research Institute. And uh, my new book is about supply chains, and it talks about supply chains and pandemics called the Supply Chain Revolution. Uh, number 17 in terms of books. <laughs> Oh no, it's gonna that's it? Seventeen? No, we're gonna, we're gonna get more. We're going to the details, which is well, half awesome. The, half cool. of my half of my mother bought most of the The other half were big. I'm Lindley Hinserling. Um, I'm the chief strategy officer over at Aerospike. Uh, we're a database company um, powering um, you know companies like uh, Trade Desk. Um, that are sort of purely digital, high-speed ad tech companies, as well as a lot of financial services companies, um, and uh, doing international interbank uh, payment systems as well, with our strongly consistent uh, NoSQL super fast database. Very cool, Stefan Pascal. Hi, I'm Stefan. I'm one of the co-founders of Wonder, and we're building a, a virtual events platform that puts networking and spontaneous interactions at its core. Hi, Pascal. Um, I'm another co-founder of Wonder, one of three. Very, very cool. Hey, we're glad to have both of you here. And you guys are calling in from Berlin, so thank you for coming in. So, all right, cool. Well, let's go do the show. All right, three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation <clears throat> Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet. I see him on Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, Fox Business, almost on a daily basis. Uh, I consider him one of the top features to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my ultimate co-host. If you think about it, the one and only Vala Ashar. If you want something inspirational on Twitter, if you want to think about great keynotes, talk to Vala. He's actually the top follow on for CIOs, CEOs, and CMOs all over the world. And more importantly, a stand-up guy on TV, on <laughs> keynotes, and everywhere around. But hey, it's not about us. It is really about our awesome guests. And who do we have to kick it off today? Ray, it's an honor and a privilege. Our first guest is Don Tapscott, Executive Chairman of the Blockchain Research Institute, one of the world's leading authorities on the impact of technology on business and society. Don has authored, get ready for this, Ray. You and I have written one book. Uh, Don has written 17 books, including uh, Wikonomics uh, and you know a book that I think everyone should have uh, on their business desktop. Uh, I surely do. One of the best books written about the importance of uh, blockchain revolution with Don and Alex Tapscott. Don's most recent book uh, was co-authored by Alex Tapscott, uh, a globally recognized investor, advisor, speaker on blockchain tech technologies and crypto assets. Uh, blockchain revolution, how the technology behind Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies changed the world. According to Harvard Business, Business Review's late Clay Christensen, is the book that literally on how to survive and thrive in the next wave of technology-driven disruption, a must-read book. In 2017, uh, Don and Alex co-founded Blockchain Research Institute, whose 100 plus projects are definitive investigation into blockchain strategies, use cases, implementation challenges, and organizational transformations. Don's member of the Order of Canada and is ranked the second most influential management thinker and the top digital thinker in the world by Thinkers 50. Uh, he's an amazing follow on Twitter. You can learn from him on Twitter uh, on a frequent basis at D-T-A-P-S-C-O-T-T. -T. 
Welcome, uh, Don Tapscott, to Disrupt TV. Great to be here, as it were. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> hey, Don, Don, we've had you as a keynote at our conference. You know, I've seen you around the world speaking. I think we've been on the stage sometimes together. You know, this is awesome. You actually started, you wrote a new book and it just came out. It's on the supply chain revolution, really building on some of the things that you learned about blockchain. And I think that's kind of interesting. And you also wrote this interesting article kind of related to this about the new social contract um, for a digital age. Let's start there because you start in January 2030. You're looking back a decade. COVID-19 is, I don't know, somehow over by then, we hope. And it <laughs> took over a lot of folks. And uh, what's going on? What's happening? Well, thanks, Ray. And, and uh, it's, it's great to be on, on the show. Um, let me uh, let me wind back a bit to uh, sort of explain this. Uh, I, wrote, I wrote a couple of books in the 1980s that nobody read. And then I... Um, that's, that's not true. That's not true. That is not true at all, dude. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we all I, read those. I started uh, writing some bestsellers in the early 1990s. So 93 was Paradigm Shift, obviously a big book. And uh, 94, The Digital Economy, which is, uh, they say it's the first bestseller about the web in business. And um, 20 years later, I had to reflect on uh, uh, what had occurred because I was asked to write the 20th anniversary edition. So uh, I had to read the book again. It held up quite well. Um, but a, a couple of things really struck me. One of them was the, the subtitle was Promise and Peril in the Age of Network Intelligence. The book was mainly about the promise. The internet, the web, they're going to be amazing and do all these wonderful things. I had a little section called The Dark Side. And I said, some things could go wrong. There were seven of them. I won't go through them all, but I said, we could lose our privacy in an irrevocable way. Jack, I said, um, some uh, big uh, companies could capture our data, the new asset class of the digital age. We could see growing social inequality. We could see a, a bifurcation of wealth where the economy was growing, but the middle class is shrinking. I said, uh, I think technology is going to create jobs. It always does. Schumpeter created destruction. Ray, you talked about this. I said, but yeah. the opposite could happen. We could have a new wave of technology come in so fast that it would create structural unemployment. And, um, you know, get ready for the combination of blockchain and AI. Uh, you know, in the, in the United States, 48 out of 50 states, the number one job type for men is truck driver. And for women, it's cashier. Well, those are gone, not in a, a century from now, in a decade. And on and on. I said, I think the Internet's going to bring us all together because we'll have access to the same information. I said, but I, the opposite could happen. I mean, we could have a, a, a fragmentation of public discourse where people follow their own little point of view. And as we all know today, we're in these self-reinforcing echo chambers where for a lot of people, the purpose of information is not to inform us, it's to give us comfort. So bring in the pandemic and all of these problems have been supercharged um, so fast. You now we're seeing the systematic inequality. Well, poor people, and it turns out um, uh, uh, people of color and race, uh, uh, black people, indigenous people, uh, you know, homeless people are, are suffering disproportionately from, from the, the pandemic. We're seeing the, the, this thing is exposing with a searing clarity these really deep problems in society like racial in, injustice. And, um, you know, with the fragmentation of public discourse has enabled shucksters to challenge basic science and prevent an effective response to the pandemic. So, and the pandemic has also revealed all kinds of deep problems in our supply chains and our systems for medical data, which are a subset of our systems uh, for our, our, our identity. So, you know, this is really a turning point in history and we're all starting to think, I hope really big about what kinds of changes we need to make. And the conclusion, sort of it's kind of a long answer, um, is that I think we're gonna need a new social contract. You know, the, the, the agreement between citizens, governments, other institutions, the private sector, civil society, and when you think about it, when we went from the agrarian age to the industrial age, we developed the social contract. We, we figured people needed to be literate. So we created the public education system, created a law. You have to go to school. It's against the law. 
um, we figured that you can't have one oil company owning all the oil, created anti-monopoly legislation. We figured out that the people who live in the city, we're going to need a social safety net and so on. I don't think that we've done any of that for the digital age. So I've, I've created this modest little document. It's sort of a, a, a discussion point, and people can find it all online. It's a draft, a new social contract. I called it the Declaration of Interdependence. And if you Google that in my name, um, you have a look. It's almost a book-sized thing. I have no idea what I'm going to do with it. Um, but maybe it'll be, a, you know, a tractor trailer roadshow or a TV series or a <laughs> podcast or a, a book. I don't know. It could be a, who knows? But, uh, but it, should, it should be all of that. Yeah, but not, not to joke around. Th this is very serious. And what I did in this article, it was for a coin desk, is I looked back from 2030 and I talked about how it was that we got there and what had to happen for a new contract to be forged. It's, uh, you know, you have a remarkable track record of accurately forecasting the future. And so I just, I just the opening paragraph, again, uh, for those of you that watching, it, this is a must read. Uh, January 2030, looking back a decade, the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 to 2022 did more than take 5 million lives and devastate the global economy. Just for record last week, I believe we crossed a million lives. So you're projecting in the next two years an additional four plus million. It revealed with searing clarity weaknesses, not just in our political leaders, governments and society, but in our, but in our system for, for everything from supply chains to data to public health. And you did list the five weaknesses which you talked about. You led with systematic inequality, racial injustice. We all know today it's health crisis, economic crisis, racial inequality, climate, uh, misinformation. So there's just deficit of trust because of all these concurrent crises happening just since the, you know, in the beginning of 2020. You also talked about, which you just uh, uh, mentioned, the, the six principles. You highlighted the countries around the world, New People's Congress assembled around to create these six principles in the next decade. Again, this is an article coming from 2030. And uh, you listed inclusive models of global uh, problem solving, rethinking democracy for citizen engagement, new commitment to justice, uh, new models for work and education, new models of identity, a commitment to sustainability. And long before the pandemic, you had actually referenced sectors and industries that were going to be deeply impacted by something that perhaps is bigger than the internet itself, that being distributed ledgers and blockchain technology. Can you talk about any one of these six principles that you believe have, have the, has the most likeliness to, to, to be adopted in the next decade? Well, a big one on everybody's mind right now with the election coming up is, uh, and I'm a Canadian, I don't vote, this is not a political statement, but is that we do have a crisis of legitimacy of our democratic institutions. Um, many countries, young people aren't voting. They like the bumper sticker, don't vote. It only encourages them. And, uh, you know, that's kind of funny, except it's not really, because what's the alternative to democracy? And, and the idea of legitimacy is that you may disagree with who's in power, but at least you think the system is the best system. A lot of people, including the president of the United States right now, are questioning the system. You know, it's corrupt, it's full of voter fraud, the center of American uh, democracy, Washington, is a, is a swamp and so on. And there are a whole number of fundamental problems here, but, and, and problems which, by the way, are in part created by technology, like this fragmentation of public discourse. How can we be so divided? Well. I hate to say it, but the internet has enabled that. Um, but technology also enables us to have some solutions to these problems as well. And this is kind of a long conversation. We could talk about this for quite a while, but I will just say a, a couple of things about the problem and solution. So the fundamental problem to me is that politicians are not accountable to citizens. So you think about it, in the United States, what is it, 94% of Americans think there should be background checks for firearm purchases, but Congress can't pass a law reflecting the will of the people. So government for the people, by the people, of the people, this is visible because 
poll um, elected representatives are not accountable to citizens, they're accountable to the people who put them in power, the people who funded their campaigns. So how do we move to a whole new model of democracy? I mean, I, I don't want to be too hard on this because we had this first era of democracy that's been a lot better than what <laughs> than than uh, what existed before, which was kings and nobles making all the decisions about things. Um, but we had this first era and we created these representative institutions, but there was a weak public mandate. Citizens were inert. Uh, politicians are beholden to uh, uh, to the the big fund uh, funders that that put them in power and there there there's opacity everywhere you don't really know what's going on imagine a second era enabled by a next generation of technology where we have a culture of public deliberation active citizenship where we have ways of finding out what is the truth where we have politicians are accountable to citizens we could do that why don't why don't we have uh, smart votes hmm. Um, we can have smart money, but using blockchain technology, you send your kid off to university, you hope he, <laughs> he spends the money on books and tuition and not in the bar. Well, with smart money, he goes into the bar, orders a mojito, and the money says, sorry, Bobby, I don't do mojitos. I only do books and, and, and tuition. Well, we could have a vote inside a smart contract, whereby you're not just voting for a politician, you're voting for their program. And if they don't execute on their program, then there are all kinds of consequences. Maybe funds don't flow, people don't get paid. Um, you know, ultimately someone is, is, is uh, removed from, from power. So it's not that technology is gonna solve all of our problems. It, it's, it's just that we have this next generation of technology that gives us another kick at the can to kind of rewrite the economic power grid and the old order of things and to rebuild some of our institutions. And this pandemic is just hammering us right now to think about new ways of doing things. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of shift in terms of that thinking and what you're really talking about is, is, is a greater level of decentralization here. And, yeah. and I, th I think you're trying to take that power to the individual. Um, existing models were representative democracy, which operate a little bit different when you're in a republic. And so that kind of changes the thing because you have to balance the majority and the minority views. I think that was what the framers of the uh, U.S. Constitution were trying to do. Um, it's just that, you know, when, when there's distrust in institutions and distrust in systems, it becomes a little harder uh, for those things to happen. And so you, you talk a little bit, you know, about, you know, what actually happens, you know, post this kind of distrust and this decentralized work that's actually happening. Um, so what can we do? Where do you see blockchain taking this forward in terms of some of those other ideas? Um, in terms of like, you know, for the economy, uh, post-pandemic, where do you think this will go? Well, I'll tell you, and there's a, a lot lot of topics here, but I'm just going to pick up on one. Our time's running out too. But the, the pandemic has a lot to do with data or lack thereof. You know, clinicians have not had the data, epidemiologists to be able to have early warning systems to track stuff and so on. And, and data is really is is the the new asset class of the digital age but if you look at health data it's all locked up in these little silos mm -hmm. and we don't own it and there's no way to aggregate data across all of our individual identities now we could have a self-sovereign healthcare record part of a broader identity that could be truly extraordinary where we own our data we can get access to it we can use that data to plan our life we can monetize it but there are also agreements as part of a social contract where in a crisis like say a pandemic that anonymized data gets aggregated instantly for epidemiologists and that could be real-time data you know we're all wearing these wearables we got measuring our heart rate and it could be our temperature or our you know blood pressure whether or not we're coughing and all kinds of other stuff so this is a subset of to me what i think is it's right up there with climate change in my mind about a fundamental issue that we need to tackle and technologies at the heart of it, which is the notion of identity. You know, think about it. The virtual ray knows more about you than you do. This trail of digital trends. You know, you the virtual can't. Virtual ray is always smarter. The actual ray can't remember exactly where you were a year ago or what you said or what you bought. or they what can't. Medication. Totally can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what medication you had or what, you know, what, uh, you know, what diagnosis you had or, you know, and so on. And the trouble is that 
we all create this data, um, but it's sort of like a, I, I've called it, it's a little pejorative, I've called it digital feudalism, where mm. it's, it's like under feudalism, you created value, produce or something, the landlord took away most of it and you were left with a little bit. Well, we all create this data, it's expropriated by these digital conglomerates, and um, which is a term that we used 15 years ago and, and no one's ever paid attention to it till this year. But uh, these digital conglomerates capture it and, and, and we're left with a few cabbages. And this is a really big problem for, for in ways that people don't understand. First of all, um, you can't use the data to plan your life. How amazing would it be if you had access to all this data? You can't monetize it. So that gets back to this bifurcation of wealth. Mm. You can't, um, it's, it's not secure, it's on central servers, and there are two kinds of these things, those that have been hacked and those that will be hacked. <laughs> um, it means that in a pandemic, you can't, or a crisis, you can't aggregate data mm -hmm. across all these identities because, um, you know, they're in silos. And, and, our, and our privacy is being undermined. And people say to me, well, Don, privacy's dead, get over it. You got nothing to hide, what's your problem? This is stupidity. Privacy is the foundation of freedom. And we need to get all this data back because it represents our identities. Get it back so that we can manage it responsibly for ourselves. Now, enter new technology, and I can't explain how, but I've written about this lots. It's in blockchain revolution, actually. Using blockchain, we could have a self-sovereign portable identity that's sweeping up this, this uh, uh, exhaust of data capturing it and enabling us to to achieve all of these benefits for society and if we're going to have a civilization going forward we need to do this because we need to have autonomy as individuals and the ability to have our own identities for those of you who are watching uh, go to don tapscott's website just google his name you see the website he recently wrote about five ways the blockchain can help the economy and business in the pandemic, uh, the, uh, starting with the self-sovereign identity that you just mentioned, uh, five massively interesting uh, use cases, uh, incentive models to reward responsible behavior was my favorite. Um, but, you know, I encourage you to, in the interest of time, please go read Don's thinking. And again, he has had uh, three decades uh, of super accurate uh, predictions about uh, the near future. So uh, really appreciate your, your shared wisdom, Don. Really privileged yeah. to hear from you. I know. Just a, a couple of things. Thanks a lot. This is amazing. Yes. A couple Please. of things on that. Um, actually, I'm not really a futurist. I think I'm sort of of the school the future is something to be predicted, not something to be predicted. It's something to be achieved. And now is a time when we all need to come together and forge a whole new contract and a new consensus. And I will say something that I haven't said before publicly, um, announcing uh, next week on Wednesday, um, we're announcing, ta-da, uh, dontapscott.com. And my team put this together and it actually goes back <laughs> four decades, uh, back to my uh, running for the mayor of Edmonton in 1977 <laughs> under a radical socialist program. And I printed that program today. So you can go there and see what you think of it. Um, but um, That's awesome. Breaking news on Disrupt TV, DonTopscott.com. I love it. But I because I have a few a few days to uh, to clean it up. Well, we're here with awesome. Don Tapscott, co-founder and executive chairman at Blockchain Research Institute and author. Check out the new book, Supply Chain Revolution, a co-patriot to Blockchain Revolution. You can follow him on Twitter at D-T-A-P-S-C-O-T-T. -T. And uh, big shout out to Robots and Pencils for sponsoring our Disrupt TV show. So thank you very much. Thank hey, you, thanks Don. for being on the show, Don. And uh, you know, we'll care. look forward to the book. Terrific. Uh, uh, watch his TED Talk and the murmuration of birds and... He is one of the super thinkers, uh, and he is a futurist. I disagree with him. Anyway, <laughs> uh, speaking of amazing insights and digital transformation, accelerated hyper rate, our next uh, guest, Lenny Hansling, Chief Strategy Officer at Aerospike. Uh, Lenny has more than 30 years of experience uh, in engineering management, product management, operational management, both in startups and large successful software companies. 
Lenly previously held executive positions at uh, Novell Enterworks, JD Edwards, Enterprise TV, and Oracle. He has extensive experience in delivering value to customers and shareholders in both enterprise applications and infrastructure software. Lenly believes that business is now happening in real time, absolutely speak to value is key, and that the right infrastructure for serving data to new real-time applications is rapidly accelerating requirements for businesses in order to be successful. Uh, you can follow Lenly on Twitter at P-A-R-K-C-I-T-Y-G-L-I-S-S-E. Welcome, Lenly, to the Shark TV. Hey there, Ray, Lala. So, hey, welcome. <laughs> very interesting listening to Don. You know, I've read several of his books, like we all have, um, and and you know, blockchains one of those things that um, you know needs massive scale and needs to be faster than it is. Um, yeah. Although it's delivering a lot of you know value today, uh, I I did peek into some of his uh, thoughts on supply chain. And, you know, we went through this massive aggregation and elimination of, of any slack in the system, right? And with the COVID um, crisis, if you will, um, a lot of people are rethinking supply chains to be more diverse and to be uh, more decentralized and to have contingencies. Uh, so I think that that's, that's something that um, is going to hinge on you know, distributed information. Um, and when you look at, you know, digital transformation, it's really about opening up our systems. I mean, I, I can remember a conversation, Ray, you and I had, I don't know, you know, 10, 12, 14 years ago, maybe, but it was about, you know, the difference between adversarial relationships in a supply chain and supplying yep. all the information transparently between you know, consumers and providers and, and really trying to optimize and share the benefits of that. And, and I think that, you know, that's at the heart of what we do. It's at the heart of what we do, even, you know, in our relationships with, with the bad guys like Amazon, right? They share tremendous amounts of information to us. We share tremendous amounts of information that we don't even know about <laughs> to them, um, but but there is an interplay of value exchange there, you know, and 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 we've all everybody in technology been on a a hunt for removing friction from transactions, yeah, you know, and that's that's a lot of what um, happens in digital transformation. So it used to be, you know, you go and you make a payment or you deposit money in your, your bank account, and your expectation was you could get to it three days from now. Who would put up with that today? Hmm. No one. And, and now you, you, you deposit it, you look at your phone, and you want to see it reflected instantaneously, right? And then you want to transfer money you know, from here to Berlin, from here to Buenos Aires, and, and have it show up instantaneously. So, so that's, that's the kind of interaction, the kind of speed that um, we now have to have. And it's not, you know, it's not going back to your Oracle database and your ERP system and waiting for batch jobs to run. Um, that's no longer okay. So speed, speed's so important, right? Right. We're talking about precision decisions, right? One of the things that we talked about uh, yeah. at your event and, and it's, we gotta make fast decisions, we gotta make them quickly. There's another concept that's really behind this, right? It's what we call decision velocity. And in decision velocity, machines are able to make decisions 100 times per second. Humans are able to make a decision per second and it takes them four weeks to get out of management committee. That is like the worst information asymmetry, decision asymmetry that we get to, right? And so what's going on, right? How do we get to that point where we're confident enough that those automated decisions are, are worth it? So, so, you know, a, a, we have a lot of customers doing that today. And, and what they speak about is um, the fidelity of the models. And fidelity of the models dependent upon how much information they can consume, right? I, I like to make the analogy of, of people, right? You know, when we say, here's a smart person, here's a, a person whose judgment I have confidence in, it's because they have both very specific expertise and very specific information and a lot of it, but they also have a broad contextual 
uh, set of information and expertise as well. Yep. And to apply both of those simultaneously in milliseconds, right, requires you to be able to access more data into broadly parallelized, you know, computations and Spark or pick your favorite, you know, AI ML framework. Um, and, and I think all of us are trying to figure out how do we do that? We have customers who tell us we're adding 10 to 100 new data sources a month into our modeling. Okay, think about that. And all that streaming in, in some by some definition of real time, it's not, I get it refreshed on a monthly basis, right? I get it refreshed multiple times a day, multiple times an hour. And so being in the moment you know, sort of my definition of real time. And that's what we're striving to support at Aerospike, right? That scale, that breadth and throughput. But what's really behind it is is sort of a simple thing. We all, you know, know a smart person, a well-educated person. It's not somebody who knows one thing. It's not somebody who's access only to a part of the information. It's someone who has access to a broad range and can hold that in their head, right? simultaneously pattern match it against the, the broad contextual reference data they have. And that's the game that's being played out now. And we are trying, you know, as fast as we can evolve because people are really driving this, you know, precision decisioning as, as Ray calls it, right? Very fast now. It's evolving continuously. And, you know, we're trying to evolve with it. We had the uh, head of McKinsey Research on our show a couple of weeks ago, and uh, uh, one of the key findings uh, of their, uh, you know, in-pandemic consumer uh, buying behavior was that 75% of Americans have switched brands during the pandemic. And number, number one, two reason was safety and accessibility. So when we talk about supply chain disruption, try buying a fridge or furniture, or maybe early on toilet paper or hand sanitizer, but uh, it was the number was remarkable. Certain countries like India was 91% had switched brands. These are unheard of numbers in terms of uh, you know uh, a shock to brand loyalty. So it's uh, it's part of the trust equation because safety, for example, is now a brand pillar. And to gain trust, you have to demonstrate speed to value. And if you demonstrate speed to value, uh, you know consistently, you can hopefully earn trust. So. What are your thoughts about what we've experienced in the last seven months in terms of the pandemic's role in accelerating the need for precision decision-making, execution velocity, co-creating value at the speed of need, at the moment of truth, during that customer journey where you recognize buying signals and you provide the right product on the right channel to the right person with the right value proposition. Uh, on the e-commerce side, McKinsey said there was 10 years of adoption accelerated just in the past three months. So there's, there's definitely clear signals that transformation, digital transformation and rapid decision making is now a boardroom discussion because it's a matter of survival. It's no longer nice to have. Your thoughts? Yeah, so, so, so I participate in a couple other um, sort of roundtable things with investors. And, and, and one of the things I brought up early in the uh, cycle with them was that supply chains were going to be disrupted pretty quickly because they'd been optimized you know, to be just in time and that there wasn't much slack in the system. And that had provide, provided great efficiency, but not great resiliency necessarily. Hmm. Um, and so, so there, there are two sides to this story, right? One is that things became broken for a while. I mean, we all had the experience of walking into a grocery store, which at least in this country, you know, was a, a new experience for most of us. And the shelves were empty. <laughs> and the shelves remained empty for some things for longer than any of us had expected. You know, being, being a guy who worked in supply chain software for an extended period of time, I was sitting there looking at what it was, looking at what the dependent, you know, raw materials were, thinking about how much outsourcing, offshoring had gone on, what the length of those supply chains were, where the virus was impacting, you know, and, and thinking about how this chess game was going to be played. One of the things that struck me was how fast it all came back. I mean, it seemed slow, but how fast it all came back, given that 
there were no real buffering anymore. You know, we sold software on the basis of you will not have to have this much inventory. Right. You, know, you will not it's have crazy. to have this in your warehouse. Right. I mean, this, this is like the, and it's the longest supply chains ever too, right? I mean, you're coming yeah. from China, right? The yeah. stuff that's yeah. being made yeah. is like three months old by the time it shows up. It's not like it's yeah. being made like a couple of weeks in advance. Right. I mean, it's like, can you imagine Halloween candy? That's like another one. Right. I mean, who would have known? They make the candy six months in advance. Right. That's right. That's, that's another interesting thing. So, so it's so tough. But but here again, you, you know, the ability to respond faster. Right. To, to, to see and, and to have a picture of your supply chain. And, and I think Don was touching on some interesting things where, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth between you know, centralization and decentralization. And, and I mm -hmm. think it's going to swing back toward decentralization. Mm -hmm. That makes the problem somewhat more complex. But the more decentralized it is, the more possibility of mm -hmm. resiliency comes. And then you're starting to have to share information across a network with more points in it yeah. and, and have, you know, transparency not in a linear supply chain where I've decided this is the guy I can leverage the most against and get the lowest price, but that has optionality built into it. And now we have the tools with AI and ML and with the ability to process data in real time. And like I said, we're trying to keep up. We're constantly working on the distribution of data, the sharing of data. You know, we just came out with a complete rewrite of our cross data center replication. Why? because the world is distributed and we think that there will be more decentralization and more sharing of data, not only wow, with so that. You sure, you sure Don Tapscott's view here on this decentralization that's about to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th I, th I think it's something that swings back and forth. You, you know, there's probably a golden mean and we don't quite recognize it when we pass it going both ways, <laughs> you know, but, but I think it's going to swing back towards de decentralization. Um, because that's the basis of resiliency. And, and as I said, the models become somewhat more complex. Data has to be shared across more points. You know, blockchain, blockchain in itself mathematically is kind of fascinating. But what's really fascinating are, are the implications in terms of contracts, the speed at which contracts can be put in place and become transparent and enforceable, right? Um, and I think that that's just more data, more real-time data that has to feed into things like the ability to say, I'm supporting, you know, 200 contracts where I had five yeah. before because I want optionality. I would like to have toilet paper come from, you know, Finland as well as Vancouver. Why? Yeah. Well, you know, if you distribute the risk, we all know this technically, like, does anybody have one data center? that's a cloud vendor? Does anybody have one zone? No. Would it be more efficient to have it all together, one thing? Yeah. Sure. But we distribute the possibility of failure. We know that technically, and I think that's going to ripple through supply chains. I think it's going to ripple through organizational models. Um, it, you know, the people who had distributed workforces yeah. were better off. Hey, these guys got sick, but we shifted the work. Oh, wait, these guys are well now, <laughs> you, you know. Yeah. So, hey, I'm, I'm going to give you four use cases and you tell me what's going to change. Right. So let's I'll, I'll give them ahead of time. Fraud prevention, customer experience, payment processing and recommendation engines. So what changes with fraud prevention? You know, fraud detections changing sort of radically because it used to be we were trying to find and identify the bad guy. Right. And now we're trying to understand the customer more deeply and be able to, to, to recognize that behavior and that person and to know more than just one track of behavior about them, right? And so that's meant capturing more data over a longer period of time and keeping that and having a more sophisticated model of who Ray is. I mean, you know, Ray, how often are you in the same place? <laughs> I'm not. That's the thing. But now I'm no. home for a year. Now, if I go out traveling to like 40 different cities in like five weeks, you know, it's going to be fraud every transaction. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a little worried. This is the contextual information that has to be there. And so I think the models have become much richer. 
I mean, you know, we have new expectations about it. We, we like it when it says, you know, you bought these three things and you're, you know, in Moscow. You know, this happened to me once on a credit card. And then they, and you go like, is this you? And you go, yes, you know, done. Isn't that great? As opposed to, gee, you know, you travel a lot, so I'm going to treat you this way. If it was somebody else who never leaves the U.S., they treat it differently. They think that's fraud. They wouldn't just, can you, can you confirm this in a nice way, right? So I think that's fraud. Just richer models with more data held over longer period of times to create a truer picture of yeah, I know I had that happen to me. I was in Dubai, London, and New York all in like one day, and someone thought it was massive fraud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, for a three dollar bottle of water. I mean, come on. It's uh, you know a big takeaway talking to you, Lenny, is this notion of uh, balance between efficiency versus resiliency. Uh, yes. Not even you know not verse, but really just a balance between the two and. And when I when you're talking about resiliency, you know, in so many words, it's 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 a decentralized framework. It's diversity of suppliers. It's modularity of design for easy substitution. It's uh, sharing insights uh, at optimal speed. Sharing insights across the ecosystem. So yes, there's complexity and additional nodes and systems. But this is why you need a fast database. This is why you need to lean into right. technology because. I think one of the biggest blind sides, blind spots in business pre-pandemic was not valuing decentralized models as much as we should because we light switch in March, the world went purely digital, purely decentralized. You know, you couldn't go into office, you couldn't go to your store, you couldn't watch your favorite team compete in person. So uh, it's 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 remarkable. So can can you talk about again emphasis on? speed to value what advice you know you're, you're the chief you're the lead strategy guy at your company when you're sitting in front of a ceo and the ceo says lenly help me maintain relevance for my brand and my company what's what's the advice you give them yeah i i think the biggest thing is to to know your customer right and, yeah. and the yeah. expectation of understanding you know several things the context in which they're operating, you know, to be aware of the world, right? The, the, the whole reference model that that customer is operating in, to know specifically what you can do for them mm -hmm. and, and to try and try and engage with them to map your value into their goals, right? Um, and I think that what, what's happening right now is that, as we talked about, the, the move to become digital has been accelerated. Yeah. But I think that the, the understanding of what the implications of going digital are is sort of unevenly distributed. You know, the people who started and have been prosecuting this for as much as 10 years for some people, you know, five years for other, it is that if you're getting into it now seriously and you've been dabbling in it, what happens is you've opened up your systems, just open them up to instead of 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 users, you're talking about 20 million, 30 million people coming at you and you know wanting access to the status of their orders, to understanding you know, where their order is, and you're opening up your internal systems to all of them. And that means data shift. volumes, that means yeah. massive read volumes. I mean, we all come, I always like to say your customers come armed. They yeah. come armed. You know, they, sometimes, they're two, sometimes they're two-fisted too. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're going, going continually saying, what, what happened to my order? You know, not because it's late, but just yeah. where, where is it? And they can do that. And they expect wow. truth in that. Yeah. So there's right, a cost. Me, thank you so there's much. A, there's, for, a, there's a cost to radical transparency but if you execute well, the, the, the values you earn their trust and hopefully brand loyalty. Yeah, it, it, is, it is a trust relationship thing. Hey, Ray, great. No, no, we're here with Lensley Hensling, 
Chief Strategy Officer at Aerospike. You can follow him at Twitter at Park City Gliss, G-L-I-S-S-E. I'm going to have to ask you why you chose that Twitter handle another time. So yeah. thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for being here and uh, sharing your Friday with us. Thanks, so, Thank you very much. This is Brilliant. awesome. We Brilliant. are here, and this is amazing. We are on episode number 208, sponsored by Robots and Pencils. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for your sponsorship. You can follow Robots and Pencils, of course. They do some wonderful mobile design work. Now, who do we have right now? This All right, so yeah, yeah, this may be, you know, it's a US baseball sports analogy, but this is the cleanup hitter spot <laughs> where, we, you know, the end of the game, you bring the you know, best and brightest to, to bring, the, bring it home. And it's our privilege to have two, two, two of the three co-founders of Wonder. We have Stephen Rowe and Pascal Steck, co-founders of Wonder, formerly known as uh, Yo Tribe, as our, as our guest. Wonder is a virtual space uh, where people can meet and talk. And right now there's over 10,000 folks uh, that are hosting uh, their events on Wonder, which is pretty awesome. Uh, Stefan is the, in charge of the uh, general management at Wonder. He was previously consulted at McKinsey and Pascal's in charge of marketing and sales on Wonder. He was pre previously a uh, product manager at N26 in Berlin and head of marketing at Shopco in San Francisco. I know you guys are dialing in from the other side of the ocean. Thank you for disrupting your dinner to be with us. Uh, I appreciate having you here. Thanks for having us here. Thanks. Hey, thanks for being here. Um, so for, for those who are watching the show, we're actually using Wonder as our platform for our event. And part of the reason we're doing that is, I'm going to be honest, I am so sick and tired of virtual events. They are so boring. They're one to many. It's all broadcast. It stinks, right? And so that was probably the design point for you guys in terms of changing the way virtual events actually work in terms of getting it away from being just full broadcast to actually getting to the networking piece. But before we start there, you guys started out as a different company. How did you start out and how did you end up doing the pivot? Because I think that's a very interesting part of the story. <laughs> Yeah, so the three of us got together, I think it was in January, um, wanting to, to build something. And the idea was to focus on a smaller, more manageable problem, make a bit of money that would then allow us to focus on something big. And the idea we, we went for was a, um, a platform for wedding photographers. Um, and so oh, we worked my. on it for a couple of months. <laughs> um, it was actually, it was looking fairly good. The, the problem was obviously the, the first week that we were unit economics positive was also the week that lockdown started in Europe. So it was a bit wow. earlier than the States. Wow. Um, and so we realized, you know, that's obviously not the, the kind of the growth market of the next two years, um, which was actually, it was a bit of a gift in disguise, I think, because we, we then sat down and said, you know, we, we, we still don't have any money, but at least we get the chance to, to focus on something, you know, big and, and relevant now. That's not just important, you know, for the crisis, but also for the time after the crisis. So we, you know, we thought, what's the, what's the, what does the world look like in, in maybe five or 10 years? And I think, you know, getting together in large groups was probably at this point kind of the most obvious gap in terms of, you know, what we would need to, to feel comfortable in a world after COVID. Um, and it was also where we felt there was the, the strongest gap in the market based on our own experience and I think everyone else's experience, as you just said, Ray. That's amazing. That's amazing. A few months ago, we had the co-founder of Square uh, and, uh, you know, a multi-billion dollar company. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and the lesson there was don't uh, disqualify yourself if you don't have experience when trying to go after unsolved problems. By definition, if they're unsolved, it means there really isn't experience there. So why not go for it? And certainly beginning of this year, pre-pandemic, I don't think all of us had experience in terms of a platform that's needed to have a beautiful virtual event experience. So tell us about, you know, the gumption of you three co-founders, uh, you know, going after trying to solve an unsolved problem, which was delivering a beautiful experience for virtual events. Well, I think it, um, it it basically starts with the with the appreciation of the fact that we have so many uh, amazing tools for virtual communications out there. Like um, if you look at uh, like Zoom, Google Meet, like very established, very well made products, but they all go to um, they 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 all tackle one thing, which is one-to-one -one communication or small group com communication. So for these, uh, the paradigms with which they were built are uh, fit perfectly. So you have one person talking, everybody else listening. 
right? Or you have a breakout sessions where you do like a top-down moderation and you have uh, you get into uh, smaller groups. But when it comes to um, 50, hundreds or thousands of people, like this paradigms get boring very quickly. Like um, you want to have um, you want to have some uh, uh, as a guest, you want to have some freedom of, of choice. Like, who do you want to talk to? When? When do you uh, finish a conversation? Uh, how big is your group that you want to communicate with? Some people prefer like large groups. Some uh, uh, prefer more intimate conversations. So um, this is where we really felt that there is a, a product missing, and that a lot of these like uh, conventional tools were being abused for the, for for large group gatherings. And uh, this is where we thought the, the, there's a big gap that opened for us in the market. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I find myself more and more, you know, in, in that one-to-many or many-to-many, -many, but I lack that contextual intelligence. You know, when I'm, when, you know, when I'm in an environment where there's, let's say, 50 people that are participating, I was at a, like a digital CIO event, uh, and there was, you know, uh, 50 to 100 CIOs in the room. It would have been awesome if I just had, these are the CIOs that are connected to you on Twitter. These are the CIOs that are connected to you on LinkedIn. These are the CIOs that have commented on your articles you've written or watched Disrupt TV. I would love to be, I would love to have the visibility of finding affinity groups just based on social connections. So I would know I have a pre-existing relationship with some of these folks, which would give me the courage to knock under, you know, under circle and talk to them. I like all of that. Um, and so, you know, I look forward to platforms that are smart enough to recommend connections just based on my digital footprint and exhaust, uh, as Don Tapscott mentioned in the first segment. Sorry, Ray, I'm just, you know, speaking, speaking out loud. <laughs> no, no, keep going. Hey, no, but, but there is something about what, Vala, what you're saying is very important, right? I mean, there's also an element um, of designing for serendipity. And, and that's what really attracted us to the, the platform that you have. I mean, there were other platforms that forced you into little seating arrangements. There were other platforms that told you that, you know, here's a dedicated room that you had to think about pre ahead time. But there's something about the serendipity of walking into, you know, a, a large room and you see three people, you know, and you get together, you connect and then you do that naturally. It's not forced. Um, and that design for serendipity, I mean, was that intentional? Was it just something that you modeled um, that, that got you to that point? No, I think, I think you're right. And that was one of the core design principles of, of the whole platform. I think um, when, when you see small groups interact in real life, then, you know, everyone speaks to everyone, as Pascal said earlier. But as soon as groups get bigger, then people break up um, and kind of move around groups. And the serendipity, you know, specifically at events is often that you join someone who you know, and they have other people around them who you don't know. And that's often where you make those random encounters. So that's one. And the other one is through space. You just stand next to someone at a bar. And so we consciously brought space back into the, into the social experience of the platform because that is the, the source of most serendipity. Mm. Um, and I think you, it, it's almost like there's kind of two levels of serendipity. One is that you want to have an infrastructure that just allows for serendipity in the way that people know it already. Um, and, and that's what we've built with Wanda so far. The next level connects a bit more to what, what you just said, Valam, which is people don't want randomness. When they say serendipity, they mean, you know, by coincidence, encountering the right people. Yeah. You know, that's a cool moment of serendipity, not just literally you know, bumping into random people. And, and data, I think, um, on, on users and on guests and on their preferences and on, on, their, on their previous events, but also you know, how, how will they interact? Like, do they speak to a lot of people? Do they speak a lot? Do they speak little? Do they always speak to the same people? You know, using that information to kind of gently nudge people to, yeah. very, you know, to, to, in a very subtle way, just have those serendipitous encounters that feel very random, but that are actually a little bit curated. Like I think For that's, sure. that's kind of the art and that's where a digital platform gives you way more tools right. um, um, than, than, a, than a real life yeah. event, which has those right. element of, elements of curation as well. Right, right. I mean, I mean you know, for me, it, it's never purely random. I'm, I'm an introvert. So I, first of all, I don't find it comfortable being in a large environment and I'm the guy who initiates the conversation. That's just not me. Often I'm watching the room and someone's kind enough to come and say, hey, you look bored. Uh, my name is so-and-so. And then I love the conversation. But so we, can, we can help you. We can drop you exactly where you need to be at the next event. You know, we drop you in a group where we know there's people there who will chat to you and who will initiate the conversation. Yeah, yeah. So I, and I think so, so, so I think there's a there is a there is a subtle precision in random collisions. Like, for example, 
when I'm at Ray's event, I may have uh, I'm wearing a, a you know name tag that says speaker, and it's a ribbon that says speaker. So even being able to go on your digital platform, where when I hover next to a name, I can see they're a speaker, and maybe the topic that they're speaking or the company that they represent. If I see they're speaking on, let's say, digital transformation or impact of machine learning, I, that may be all the nudge I need to say hi. Or uh, as somebody's there talking about uh, you know innovation in agriculture, which I know nothing about, so you know I, I may be like, all right, well, you know, I'll, I'll listen to them talk before I reach out to them just to make sure that there's uh, overlap of interest. So again, I, 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 I'm hopeful that there's a bit of contextual intelligence served to me so that I get the courage, because I need courage to go, you know, knock on their door and say, hi, I'm Bala, what do you do? <laughs> you know, so. so. <laughs> no, but we, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like for our event, like one of the things that we have done is we had to let people understand that it's a different type of event. There is actual networking, right? So yeah. we've actually had, I've had 220 conversations where I've walked them through the Wonder platform. Um, we've showed them what to expect. You know, we're, we're going to greet them at the beginning. Your top salesperson, Ray Wong. <laughs> You're probably getting a lot of leads somewhere. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, like, you know, I, I could actually, you know, but the point being is like, yeah, I mean, and we've got rooms like shy but social, you know, you know, quiet room, don't bother me. I'm watching the event, you know, foodies unite. Like the idea was to create these different kind of places so that people could actually feel comfortable as they're talking right i mean and, and it, it's it's part of it but people need to know that it's it's not the normal event like you're actually going to be there you have to invest some time and once they have that i think it's going to be interesting uh, but that being on the fact like hey, what are things on the roadmap right what are important things for you guys i mean you know what what, what are people asking for yeah i, th I think we, we... And, and you guys have been everywhere like almost a lot of the universities are now using you like i've seen you at different like you know it's it's coming ground there's a groundswell coming up people are starting to discover who you are so i think we covered a, a little bit of that um already but basically we have two um let's say two fronts like one is the space so we want to like get this we want to really like flesh out this inspiration from the offline world world and use the space in order to uh, give guests you know something in their hand to structure their social interactions just like we do it in real life so we're gonna um, uh, build it out with like a special like a functionality for certain areas so that when you enter this venue you walk through this uh, space and you see all the different things happening in different corners um, so that you basically have like a, a, a full like experience and everywhere something different is going on and you just go wherever you feel most comfortable. Um, that's one thing. Then the second thing is really this um, um, making sure that uh, the best conversations happen that are possible at this event for any given guest. Um, we see it a little bit as um, what is music for Spotify, videos for YouTube, is conversations for us. This is our content. And here we have to deliver the best possible content, the best possible conversations. Here we want to give people information. We want to give them context. We want to help them manage the workflow, right? Like there, you probably saw those people who are like very professional event goers. They know exactly who they want to talk to, uh, what they want from them, etc. Like we can actually help uh, any guest to become like a more, like say, a professional uh, uh, event attendee by giving them tools at hand to make sure they um, find the right people um that are that are valuable valuable to them in any way so these are the two fronts yeah and i'm giving is people that, a chance to take a look at what you're doing um which is really how the event works so yeah are, are you considering are you considering maybe gamifying the process where if you like a conversation with someone you give them a like and at the end of the event you actually have a leaderboard of the most interesting person in terms of conversations <laughs> um well, you laugh at that, but all social it's networks awesome. are based it's on great gaming idea. principles. Uh, so, oh, no, it's a great uh, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I mean, it's it's we all have social influence by you know how many followers we have on various platforms, but none of that is really tested in real time when you're at an event. Uh, so it's not the person that tweeted the most and got on a leaderboard, but a person that had you know one-on-one -on -one intimate conversations yeah, at nice. the event. Uh, anyway, food for thought. I, I you know it's it's. It may, be, it may encourage people, again, introverts like myself, to want to have more meaningful conversations, knowing that 
you know, I can potentially build a reputation of someone who's interesting at events. <laughs> Which on any leaderboard, I'm usually at the bottom if it ever existed. So <laughs> anyway, uh, go ahead, Ray. Sorry. Oh uh, yeah, no, no, it's it's great. I mean, take building on Vala's idea, right? Like right now, we're walking in and it's anonymous. Right. You kind of know people are, but you don't know who they are. I mean, it's going to be interesting. Like, I mean, on product roadmap, like back to part of the gamification, if you can add profiles, right, as people start to see things like I'm not it's almost like a, it's like bring characteristics. Right. And so people with different profiles can get matched automatically um, would be very interesting as well as part of that gamification. Like people who are all from Berlin or people who are from London. Right. And people from New York. Right. And you could automatically choose that grouping and, and hop in. Or, for example, you know, people who are really interested in fast cars or people who are interested in basketball or other interests. You get some very interesting things as you start building those types of profiles. Not that I want you to create a match.com site, but, but <laughs> the yeah. idea is like you can at least in conversation and starter conversations, there's a lot more to bring or just feeding their LinkedIn profile and you can suck in information there and just create interesting matches. You know, so I I, I'm, saying, like, well, yeah, I'm saying, you know, I'm attending Ray's conference and I work at Salesforce. So if I could create my own virtual room uh, on the landscape that says, if you're a Salesforce customer, I'd love to speak with you and meet you. And so I create my own room, my own topic of interest. And if there are Salesforce attendees, customer attendees, they can come and speak with me. So an opportunity for me to create my own room, my own topic. And if people come, great. If they don't, they don't. Uh, again, when I wear a name badge or a lanyard, it says Vala Afshar Salesforce speaker. So I'm sending signals to people. I don't think it's random. People read your badge and they go, oh, he works at Salesforce. I happen to be a customer. I have a problem that it has gone unresolved for some time. Maybe I can talk to him. Uh, or I have a Turn new... Turn the badge around. Turn the badge around. Turn yeah. The... <laughs> or I have a new uh, business opportunity that I want to speak to Vala about, you know, anyway, so, so ability yeah. to attract audiences would be great. Yeah. I've been with Vala so much. It's usually I've seen you. I follow you on Twitter. I'm so glad yeah, to meet yeah. you. In person. <laughs> that so. happens. That happens too. In this, in this respect, I think we should, um, uh, uh, we're also aware of the fact that the people who know the guests best are actually the people who sit on top of the communities, right? And we, we actually understand ourselves as a tool for communities. Like events are, are just a way for communities to interact with each other. But sure. at the end of the day, you want to serve uh, uh, the community to get together, to exchange and to have like a valuable uh, um, um, community life. And there's always a center. There's always someone who keeps those people together. Yeah. And those are actually the ones who know best like uh, what triggers this, uh, these, these people? What, what, what do they want to talk about? What are the segments? So we want to keep it. And this is probably something you saw as you played around with Wonder. Like it's very uh, um, flexible. We want yeah. to build it very flexible so that everybody can like build their vision on top of it rather than being too restricted into a certain right. like, niche or, or, or a framework. That autonomy is great. Yeah, no, that autonomy is great. No, we do. We love it. Like this is the this is the uh, backdrop for what we're going to be using, right? And you can see, like, speakers are going to come after the event to meet here, so they can catch up. If you've got questions for speakers, if you want to go in and have some deep thoughts, you can come here. I didn't use teleport mode, um, but the point being is, like, you get some cool stuff in here. Like, I'm watching the show, right? Don't bother me. Just text, right? Quiet zone. Hang out, right? Don't disturb me, right? And then you know, Road Warriors Unite, like you know, Road Warriors Rehab. That's really what that is. So <laughs> what people are actually looking at. So, but it's kind of fun spaces and you can create those on your own, which was, which is kind of fun. Not that I should be demoing your product. Um, but my <laughs> thing is we're really excited about it and, and happy to have you here. So tell us about funding. Like what's going on? How's the startup scene in Berlin? Um, you know, how's your funding round? What are you guys looking for? Are you still looking for additional funding you know, for other investors? I know some of them watch our show, so it'd be a good chance to kind of give them a quick pitch. Yeah, I think that, well, the situation is that we, we, we closed our first funding rounds about eight weeks ago. We only announced it like a week ago together with, with, a, with, some, uh, with a rename, actually, from Eurotrop to Wanda and with a couple of uh, major product updates. Um, and so we raised, a, um, well, I guess a pre-seed or, or small seed round of $1.2 million. Um, and I think the, the, the original plan was to kind of make it last in a, in a standard, like, you know, 12 to 18 month runway. Um, style and what we found in the last two months, so since closing it, is that with user growth has been somewhere between 25 to 30 percent week on week, um, all organic. Wow. And so, yeah, so that's a doubling every three weeks. And so it's yes. kind of every all the stuff we we 
we build within the company, like a customer support system, for example, is like obsolete like a month later, basically. Um, and so I think um, this is still kind of materializing and, and, and sure. still work in progress, but I think there's a high likelihood that we that we will come back on the on the kind of fundraising scene much earlier than anticipated because at the moment you know there is just a lot more that we can do and there's a lot more we can invest to kind of to bolster that growth um yeah and kind of in a nutshell i think we we're probably ready for the next round much earlier than expected at least in terms of the milestones congratulations that's great those are good problems to have that's great <laughs> <laughs> well we're here with startup founders stefan rue pascal streck and your third one we're going to bring in next time of wonder uh, formerly yo tribe for those who have actually been using the product you can follow them on twitter at yo tribe uh, wonder is the platform we are using for constellation connected enterprise you'll hear from them as well at our event uh, and more importantly the startup scene in berlin is hot and of course these are two of the three poster children of that startup scene so thanks a lot for being on the show Thanks. Thank you guys. Well done. Thanks. Well done. That was awesome, Ray. Uh, you know, great to speak to entrepreneurs, uh, incredible futurists, and strategy leaders across, you know, amazing companies. Uh, next week is episode 209, and we have Aaron Ames, CEO of Ultimate Kronos Group, UKG. We have Craig Charlton, CEO of Sugar CRM. And we have Daphne Jones, uh, independent board member and executive coach and keynote speaker. So uh, uh, it should be a spectacular show next Friday. Ray, closing remarks on Don Tapscott and Lynn Lee and the founders of Wonder. I think we are seeing a massive shift and this conversation around digital assets and that data being the asset in the new economy, the push to decentralization in terms of how we're actually going to look at making decisions and really about the way that we need to network in a digital world all come together. And you saw that today in this episode and you're gonna see more of it as we go on throughout the year. Um, it's something I've been writing about in my next book, which one day we'll talk about, uh, but more importantly, uh, we're gonna see it at Constellation Connected Enterprise which is the 27th to 28th. So we'll be there. So see you there and have a great Friday. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. See you next Friday. Bye-bye.